1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to read verses 1 through 4, and then we'll look at verses 9 through 12. Amen. And then finally, 15 through 18. And the word of God says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so many, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Verse 9, Then there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Let's skip on down to verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syrah, and Jehu, the son of Nimshah, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Saphat, of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint. Amen. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. And every mouth that has not kissed them. Amen. Father, I pray that you would give us a word from on high in order that we would look more like you, in order to glorify you and to proclaim your word to the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tag this pericope with a topic, getting out of the dungeon of despair deliverance from the dungeon of despair. I just want you to touch your neighbor and encourage them and say, neighbor, God is calling us out. Out of despair, out of depression, out of self-pity, out of self-reliance. Touch somebody else and say, neighbor, there is deliverance 
from the dungeon of despair. Now, if you agree with that and you know that God can deliver you from the midst of any burden, of any trial, of any tribulation, I want you to give God a praise of faith, knowing that he is faithful, that he is our rock and our refuge, our strong tower, our God, and him we trust. Amen. If he's ever delivered you out of despair, I just want you to lift up your hands and praise him for bringing you out of depression, for bringing you out of self-pity, for bringing you out of suicidal thoughts. Come on and praise God for sparing your life, for encouraging you when nobody else was around to encourage you, for lifting you up when your head was bowed down. Come on and give him some praise. God, we thank you. God, we we praise you, we worship you, we magnify you, we exalt you and extol you, Father, for sparing our lives, for, for bringing us out. All the times that we said we quit, that we said we give up, that we said that we have had enough, and that you sent somebody to encourage us. You, you gave us a word. You, you gave us a song. You gave us a, a dance. You, you gave us hope in the midst of despair. We say, thank you, Father, for not leaving us in a dungeon of despair. Praise you for your grace. We praise you for your mercy. We praise you for your tenderness. We praise you for your patience. We praise you for your long suffering. We praise you for your hand that's gentle and that guides us in the midst of our storms. You ought to praise God for your neighbor. You don't know what your neighbor has been through. You don't know what your neighbor is going through. We ought to praise God on behalf of our neighbor for keeping now. Truly he is worthy to be praised. Great is our Lord. And he is greatly to be praised. Oh, how excellent is our God, the creator of the universe, the former of all mankind. Touch somebody, say, God is still in control. Amen, amen, amen. Amen. First Kings chapter 17. We are introduced into, uh, to the character that we read today. A man by the name of Elijah. And unlike the other prophets, Elijah shows up on a scene with very little biographical information on his life. We don't know his parents. We don't know much about his past. We don't know what period or stage in his life that he is in. All we know in chapter 17 when he is introduced into the biblical narrative is that he is a prophet. And he's from a place called Tishbe. He is a Tishbite. 
And the Bible does a wonderful job of quickly introducing us to this man of God. In chapter 17 and 18, the author establishes the character of Elijah. The, prof, the, the passage quickly tells us that Elijah is a courageous man. He's powerful. He has a prophetic gift and that he is faithful to the Lord. In chapter 17, we see the courage of Elijah as he shows up on the scene in front of a king by the name of Ahab. And Elijah stands flat-footed and tells the king of that time that the Lord would not allow rain to come again unless he says so. Elijah was courageous. Elijah was powerful. Elijah was prophetic. Elijah was faithful to his Lord, to his God. And right after he tells Ahab those words, the Bible says that the Lord, in the midst of a drought, led him to a brook named Sherith. And the Lord, in the midst of a drought, sent him meals on wings. The Bible says that a raven came in the morning and came each evening to make sure that the prophet had something to eat. And the Bible said that Elijah was drinking from the brook and the Lord told Elijah to get up and to go when the brook dried. The Bible says that Elijah then went to a place called Zarephath where he ran into a woman who was preparing her last meal for her child. The Bible says that this courageous, this powerful, this prophetic, and this faithful man of God challenged this woman in the midst of her poverty to bless the man of God. Elijah told the woman, he says, go and, and get me some bread and some water that I might eat. The Bible says that the woman then went and got him some, some bread and some water. And, and every time that she reached her hand in the meal and, and, and every time she brought up her hand, the Bible says that God supplied another meal. Because that's the type of God that we serve. Then this powerful, prophetic, courageous, and, and faithful man of God had the audacity to send a telegram to all the prophets of Baal. And he told all the prophets of Baal, the, the false worshiper, these idolaters, he said, I want you to meet me on Mount Carmel because we're going to have a challenge of the gods. The Bible says that he called all the prophets to Mount Carmel and they stood before their altar and they begged their God to send fire from heaven in order that they might win the contest. This powerful man of God mocked them and teased them and said, maybe your God is away on a journey or possibly relieving himself. This courageous man of God looked up to the heavens and prayed to his God. And the Bible says that fire came down from heaven. This man was powerful. He was courageous. He was prophetic. He was a faithful man of God. Right after that, the Bible says that he then had one of his servants to go tell King Ahab 
that the drought is over. And then the Bible says that it began to rain from heaven. As I look at this text today, I, I can't help but to point out that this man who has experienced the very power of God in a very personal way is now in what I call a dungeon of despair. In verse 4, the Bible says that he is sitting in the wilderness under a broom tree telling God that he has had enough. Telling God that it is over, that he is quitting. And the fact of the matter is in here uh, uh, that all of us, we have had that moment. Every human being at one time or another has told God, I have had enough. I quit. I throw in the towel. I'm tired. I'm not going back there no more. I'm getting a divorce. I'm giving up. We all have been in despair's dungeon. We all have been in a place of physical, emotional, and spiritual torment. A place of hopelessness, a, a place of momentary darkness. And the fact is, is that we should know and see through this text that despair does not discriminate. There is a misconception that despair only occurs to people who are really not important or to people who don't have anything going for themselves. There is a misconception that says that, that even Christians should never be in despair, or a Christian will never face depression. And the fact is, is that there is nothing further from the truth. The dungeon of despair ignores ethnicity. It ignores race. It ignores social and economical status. It, 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 it ignores religious beliefs and traditions. It ignores social status. Everybody in this room is a candidate of despair. We see some great men and women of God throughout the biblical narrative who had had, had enough who had come to a place in their life where they were ready and willing to throw in a towel. Job was in a dungeon of despair in Job chapter 7 verse 6 when he says, My days are swifter than a supply of thread, and they come to their end without hope. Jeremiah was in a dungeon of despair. In Lamentations chapter 3, 14 through 18, when he says, I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has seated me, sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth to grind on gravel. He has made me to be covered in ashes. Said my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is, so I say my endurance has per perished, and so has 
my hope in the Lord. Even John the Baptist, who God called, Jesus called the greatest prophet to ever be born of a woman. He found himself in the dungeon of despair facing death as he was in Herod's chambers. And he asked his, his disciples, he said, go ask Jesus. You know, the, the one who he saw do miracles, the one who he saw the Holy Spirit de de descend upon, the one who he heard God acknowledge before man as Jesus was being baptized. He said, go ask Jesus, is he the one, is he the Messiah, or should I wait for another? Despair does not discriminate. And that's why we have to look at this text as Christians in order that we would know and be encouraged and see that God cares about us when we are in despair. And that God will minister to us if we take note of his word. And the first thing we see in this text is that despair can come when we least expect it. Elijah has just experienced the greatest victories of his life. Elijah has just experienced the very fire of heaven coming down and filling his altar. Elijah has just experienced God sending rain at his word. Elijah has just experienced a woman who was in utter poverty being miraculously provided for because of her faithfulness and giving. And Elijah right off of the mountain of Carmel right after seeing God work in miraculous ways has found himself in utter despair. We've got to know that it comes when we least expect it. Despair can come right after a Sunday morning sermon that has just shook our world. Despair can come right after we get paid and, and all of our bills are met. Despair can come right after a promotion and right after a new birth. Despair does not wait and nor does it show us a whole lot of signs. But as we look at this text, we want to understand that despair always comes. When we worship our problems instead of the promise keeper. Despair, depression, self-pity, it comes when we worship our problems instead of the promise keeper. In this text we see three sources of despair and I believe that as the people of as God's people that God is showing us through the life of Elijah that that many Christians are in this dungeon because of three reasons the first reason is shown in chapter 19 verses 2 and 3 it says then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying so may the gods do to me and more also if 
I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was, somebody say, afraid. And he arose and ran for his life. The first source of despair is fear. The first source of despair is fear. Elijah has just defeated Jezebel's prophets. Jezebel was King Ahab's wife, a woman who was trifling. You know, King Ahab was a, a hen-pecked husband. He, he couldn't make decisions on his own. His wife was running things. He was the, she was the head of the house. He was a coward. And the Bible says that Jezebel had murdered all but 100 prophets in Israel. She had a pass with the prophets. Anybody who was not a worshiper of Baal, she had murdered. And Elijah has just experienced the very power of God as he has showed up her prophets. And then he had all of her prophets murdered or killed. Because that was the weight of the challenge. And the Bible says that after the victory, Elijah gets word from Jezebel's servants. That she is going to kill him this time tomorrow. And Elijah then ran in fear. He became afraid of Jezebel. And I found out that fear will paralyze you. When we operate in fear rather than faith, we find ourselves in the dungeon of despair. We find ourselves looking down. We find ourselves walking down. We will find ourselves talking down. We will find ourselves living down. And after a while, if we stay there too long, Reverend Allen will become low down. Fear will cause us to run away from the promise keeper because of our problems. Many Christians are in despair every month around the first of the month when they receive their mortgage or, or, or their cable bill. Soon as the bill come on the table, they begin to be afraid and say, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to make it. And then for two or three days, they're in despair's dungeon. Some of us are in despair and, and running from our type of Jezebel because we are concerned and afraid about our, our wayward child. Fearing what can happen to them. Some of us, we find ourselves in, in despair because we, we don't fit in with our peers and we're afraid that they will reject us. And not invite us to their birthday party. Fear will run us away from God. And into the dungeon of despair. The second thing we see here is, is not only fear, but we see fatigue. In verse, chapter 19, verse 5, we read these words, And he lay down. 
and slept under a broom tree. Elijah was burnt out. Not only was he afraid, but he was tired. He had just spent many hours on top of Mount Carmel calling rain from heaven. He just ran from Jezebel all the way down to Beersheba, which was a, a hundred mile journey. Elijah was tired. He was through. He didn't have the strength to fight the temptation of self-pity. And I found out that many of us, if we be honest, if we really look at our monthly schedule and when we are most down and depressed, it's when we're most burnt out and tired. It's when we don't have the strength to fight the depressive thought. Some of us, we are in this dungeon because we simply are too busy and don't know when to rest. Not only was fear part of this dungeon, not only was fatigue a part of this dungeon, but failure was what got him into this dungeon. In verse 4, we read that Elijah says these words. In the middle of the verse he says, the Bible says, and he asks that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life. Why? For I am no better than my father's. Elijah was in this dungeon because he feared failure. He was in this dungeon because he felt that he had in some ways failed. And he's sitting under this broom tree wishing that he was dead because of a perceived failure. These are the three sources of despair. Fear, fatigue, and failure. And as we look at these symptoms, we must also understand that, I'm sorry, these sources, that there are also symptoms of despair. When a person is in despair, there are some symptoms that follow them. When a person is operating in fear rather than faith, when a person is fatigued rather than refreshed, when a person is living with the, the fear that they are, are going to be a failure, we see that there are symptoms. The first symptom we see is found in verse 3. The Bible says that Elijah left his servant. First symptom of these three sources is detachment. Elijah detached himself from his servant. Now, a prophet's servant was somebody who was very close and dear to him. A prophet's servant would oftentimes go and tell people what thus says the Lord. A prophet's servant would have most certainly seen the victories that the prophet had experienced. 
Elijah's servant would have most certainly been with him by the brook of Sherith, would have most certainly been with him in Zarephath, would have most certainly been with him on the Mount Carmel. So Elijah's servant was his support system. And the Bible says that when fatigue and, and fear and, and all these things set in, that, that Elijah, he detached himself. From his support group. And many of us, we know that to be true. When we're feeling down, we just simply don't want to be bothered. We, we cut ourselves off. We walk around the house with a chip on our shoulder. We don't, don't want to say hello. Don't want to say good morning. Don't care about how the other person is doing. We, we completely detach ourselves. And that's exactly what God wants us to do. That's exactly what Satan wants us to do. God doesn't want us to do that. Satan wants us to do that. Satan wants us to detach ourselves from our support system. He wants us to detach ourselves from the body of Christ. He wants us to detach ourselves from our accountability partners because 1 Peter chapter 5 and 8 says that our adversary is as a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to get us by ourselves in order that we would become lamb chops, licking his lips, saying if I could just get him away, from their sister who always has a word. If I could just get them to skip Wednesday night Bible study and, and not come to Sunday school. If I can get them to skip a couple of Sunday morning services. If I can get them to get the sleepy eyes during the message. I, I can detach them from what they need. Not only do we see Elijah detaching himself. But we also see him having a spirit of dejection. Dejection is, is hopelessness. Elijah here has lost the will to live because he has lost hope. When a person is dejected, they don't want to do anything. They'd rather sit around and mope. When I'm in a dungeon of despair, I don't want to do anything. Taking a shower is drudgery. I know I'm telling the truth. You can say amen. amen. Cooking is a workout. Amen. Going to work is heresy. When we are in despair, the only thing we want to do is sit on the couch and watch movies that's going to make us cry. Saving Private Ryan becomes good when you're in despair. Not only was he dejected, but he had defeated speech. Bible says that he, his speech was defeated. He says, I have had enough. I am no good. I, I, I. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. I'm not cute. Right? When we're in despair, we, we look inward instead of upward. And we begin to think about everything that we don't have rather than thinking about what God has given. And that's exactly where Satan wants us to stay. He wants 
He wants us. He wants us to be the focus of our own lives. When the Bible tells us that we were not created to glorify ourselves, but we were created to glorify God. Defeated speech. I can't do nothing right. Every time I take one step forward, we all done said it. It's like somebody is just pulling me two steps backwards. I'd be doing better if the man wasn't always on my back. Who is the man? Defeated speech. Not only is defeated speech what happens when we're in the dungeon of despair, but defensiveness occurs. When a person is hit by despair, they are utterly defensive. All throughout this text, when we see God talking to Elijah, he is defending himself. When we look at verses 9 through 12, God comes to Elijah and he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah begins to defend himself. Begins to tell God why he has the right to be where he is and not where God has called him to be. He said, I, I'm jealous for the Lord God. In other words, Lord, I do what I'm supposed to do. I come to church every Sunday. I come to church every Wednesday. You couldn't hook a brother up? When we are in despair, we become defensive. Oh, baby, can you, can you take the trash out for me? Me and the kids, we're getting ready to run and go grocery shopping. I'm tired of taking out the trash. How much, do, how much stuff do we throw away every week? I feel like I take out the trash every day. We don't even eat that much. Defensive. Sweetie, I really don't think it was very kind of you to say what you said yesterday in front of company. I mean, I know I have this problem. I'm trying to work on it. I thought we said we wasn't going to mention it. Don't tell me what I can and can't say. Not now you're going to tell me what I can and can't say. First Amendment says we got a freedom of speech. Always come to me telling me about what I'm not doing right. person is in despair, not only are they defensive, but they are deceived. See, in this text, that Elijah was deceived. He came to the Lord and he told the Lord that he was the only one left in Israel who was not worshiping the God of Baal. And what's so funny about that is in chapter 18, verse 13, we find out that he wasn't the only one. The Bible says that a, a, a man by the name of Obadiah just had saved over a hundred prophets' lives by hiding them in a cave away from Jezebel. When we allow the dungeon of despair to, to, to take us and, and to take over us, we become deceived about what is true and what is false. We begin to over-exaggerate and make matters worse. God here, he deals with Elijah. 
He shows Elijah how to get out of the dungeon and he ministers to Elijah in a way in which we all should take note. The first thing that God does is he gives Elijah some food. Verse 5 and 6, it says, And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake bake, and on hot stones, and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. The Bible says after he did that, that God did it again. He woke him up again and he gave him food. When you find yourself in the dungeon of despair, the first thing you want to do is remember your physical health. Remember your physical health. God's first prescription to Elijah was rest and food. Rest and food. The human body was not created for unhealthy diets. And it was not created for us to run ourselves to death. I'm convinced that a part of the reason why we are not victorious in Christ as God's children, as we ought to be, is because we neglect physical health. We neglect to take care of our bodies. We neglect to eat properly. I'll be the first to admit that this is something that I have to consciously work at. Have to consciously make sure that I'm, I'm resting and make sure that I'm not doing more than I'm supposed to. Elijah had just ran 100 miles. He had just traveled 100 miles through the wilderness without food. Now if we be all the way real... As a people, our problem may not be eating too little. Huh? But a lot of times it's eating too much. Or when we eat, eating the wrong thing. My coach used to tell me fast food equals slow feet. If you're always eating fast food, you're going to be running slow come practice time. See, we must remember that anything that God gives us, it is our responsibility to be good stewards of it. Everything that God gives you, he, he, he does not necessarily give it to, give, gives it to you. It's not yours. It's really his. And, and we are to be a good steward of that in which he gives us. God gives you with a house. Be a good steward of your house. Do your best to, to keep it up without worshiping it. Right? God gives you a husband. Be a good steward of your husband. God gives you a wife. Be a good steward of your wife. Take care of what God has given you. And if God gives you, which he has, a body with breath in it, it is our responsibility to take care of it. Because it is not ours. It is the Lord's. Don't believe me? Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 through 20, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with the price. So glorify the Lord with your body. 
Our bodies are, are not our own, but our bodies is the, the temple of the living God. Like what O.S. Hawkins said about this in his book, High Calling, High Anxiety, which was very helpful to this. He, he, he talked about how the body here in, in, in Hebrew uh, would have been talking about the temple of God. And, and the temple of God, specifically the word that is used here in the Greek Septuagint, would have been used to talk about the holies of holies. He says that our body is the holies of holies. The holies of holies was a place where only the priests went. A place where only those who were working on behalf of God for Israel were entering to once a year. And that was the most precious place of Israel. And the Bible is saying that your body is the holies of holies. You are the priest of God and the Holy Spirit is dwelling in your heart and we ought to take care of our bodies. That's why we ought to not do things that will hurt our bodies. Because we've got an attendant in our hearts. We've got the Holy Spirit in our heart. And in that passage, Paul tells us that, that we ought to not hook up and have sexual intercourse with someone who is not our husband or wife. He says that we ought to not be unequally yoked, hooking up with people before marriage. Ought to walk in, in purity because our bodies is not our own. We ought to not smoke weed. Talking about it's legalized in California. Legalizing some parts of California if you get the prescription. Well, you're not in California. And it's a detriment to your body and not a help. That's why we ought to not be drunk with much wine. Alcohol is a depressant. And if you keep pouring it in yourself, you're going to end up in the dungeon of despair. He says, know that your body belongs to the Lord. And then he goes on to say that you have been bought with the price. Do I need to tell you what God used to purchase you? He didn't use denarius. He didn't use money. He didn't, he didn't use some cheap foreign system. No, he used his, the blood of his own son to purchase our bodies. That's why we ought to take care of our bodies. Paul said that we ought to glorify God in our bodies. After God gave him food, Elijah continued to run, and he ran to the Mount Horeb, which is called the Mount of God. And this is where Moses had his revelation of God. And then as he's running to this, this mountain for 40 days, the Bible says that he ran, that he traveled to this mountain, and he fasted from food. Now I want to point out, number one, God did not tell him to go to this mountain. But he chose to go to this mountain. This mountain, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, was known as the Mount of God. So maybe Elijah said, you know what, I'm going to fast, I'm going to get myself together, and I'm going to go to the place where God revealed himself to Moses. Then in verse 9, we see the second thing that we must remember. It says, there he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Second thing we want to remember 
is that we want to remember that God is personal. Remember that God is personal. The next time you find yourself in despair and you, I want you to ponder on the fact that God is a personal God. That God cares about the state that you are in. This God in heaven who is working all things according to the counsel of his will, who is keeping the earth spinning on its axis, who is keeping all of the other planets in, in orbit perfectly. This God in heaven who is constantly causing the sun and the, the moon to rise at an appointed time. This God in heaven who is caring for the orphans in Haiti and, and those who are in Africa. This God in heaven who, who cares about what's going on in China and Iraq and, and all these other places actually cares about us. He will take time to minister to us. He is never too busy to minister to his people. Never too busy. God was, was, was so personal with Elijah that he came down to Elijah himself and he asked him a question and he took the time to listen. And when you are in despair, when you are in distraught, when you feel like throwing in a towel, remember that God wants to hear from you. Instead of pouting, instead of closing up, let us open up to the Lord and tell the Lord exactly what is on our mind. And what I like about this is that Elijah, instead of praising God he complained but God still was gracious may we remember that the next time we are tempted to become detached next time we're feeling dejected the next time we have defensive speech that God is personal that he actually cares about where you are and he's willing to ask you Jamal, where are you? I think that that question is so interesting, and I read it over and over and over, trying to, to see, Lord, what word was you putting emphasis on? What word was the emphasis on? Because the, the, he could have said it three different ways, which would, would, in essence, in some way, change the way that we receive it. He could have said, Jamal, or Elijah, where are you? Putting an emphasis on where, meaning what are you doing right here? What are you doing on a couch moping about what's not going right? Where are you? Why are you in this location? Maybe it wasn't on where. Maybe it was on you. Elijah, where are you? What are you doing here? That's what he said. The one who I showed miraculous signs to. You. The one who I used to defeat Baal on the Mount of Carmel. You. The one who I called out of darkness into his marvelous light. You. The one who I delivered from alcoholism. You. The one who I gave hope to who, who when your parents abandoned you. You. The one who I gave a promotion on that job in order to keep your, your house, you. The one who I gave you gas money when everything was low and you didn't know how you was going to get from point A to point B, you. The one who I regulated your mind when everybody thought that you was going to go crazy, you. The one who I love and who I sent my son to die for, you. What are you doing here? Don't you know who you are in God? Don't you know 
that you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength? Don't you know that you are the head and not the tail? Don't you know that you are precious to me? Third thing we want to remember is that God is our powerful protector. God is our powerful protector. Look at the text. Verse 11 says, and he said, go out, stand on the mount before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in a fire. Elijah's in a cave, and he's, he's moping, and God calls him out to the cliff of the cave, and God, he, he, he descends, and he, he shows Elijah his power. And what I like about this is that he showed up in different ways. The first way was a wind, and the Bible says that the wind tore the rocks up. What's beautiful about this, Elijah was being reminded by God, look at what I can do. I'm the one that controls the wind. When I show up, the, the wind, it, 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 it goes, and the earth quakes. Look at what I can do. And yet in the midst of showing him the wind, the Bible says that, though shows us that Elijah wasn't harmed. Can you imagine Elijah at the foot of a cliff, and the wind is blowing, and the rocks are falling, and, and things are happening. The, the earth is quaking, and fire is coming, and Elijah is unharmed. When we're in a dungeon of despair, we have to remember that God is our powerful protector. Elijah was running from Jezebel, a woman who was given her breath by the God that he served. He was running and fearing somebody who was mortal. And a lot of times we've got to remember not to fear the things that are mortal because we serve an immortal God. God has not called us to fear non-eternal things. The Bible says that the only thing that we should fear is the Lord, that which is eternal. That bill is non-eternal. It means that that bill will come and it will go. Your friends are non-eternal. They were created to not live on this earth in front of you forever. Therefore, we ought to not fear what man can do, but we ought to fear the one who can harm both the body and the soul. Elijah was afraid of things that will pass. And when the next time we're in despair, we have to remind ourselves, we must remind ourselves that this too will pass. This too will pass. When something appears to hurt us or it appears to harm us or, or it does inflict us, we must remember what God said. For he causes all things to work together for our good. 
those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. That means the very thing which, which seems to be defeating you is what God is going to use in order that you can defeat the enemy. When it appears that you are losing, we must remind ourselves that in actuality, we are winning. Fourth point, final point. Verses 12 through 16. See, the Bible saying, And after the earthquake of fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, a sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And, and behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Then we see Elijah responds the same way that he had just responded. Verse 15, and the Lord said to him, go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus, which is Israel. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nezmi, Nesha, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat, and Abel, Mehola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And, and the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed them. Last thing that God shows us in order to get out of despair's dungeon is that we have to remember that God has a purpose for you and a plan for mankind. Elijah got upset and he got discouraged because things were not going his way. And many times we get so upset and so discouraged when things don't go exactly the way that we want. So God appeared to Elijah in the wind. He appeared to Elijah in an earthquake. He appeared to Elijah in the fire. And then he appeared in a small, a small voice. And the reason why he came in a small whisper or in a small voice was to tell Elijah, Elijah, I don't always work the way you think that I do. I don't always work in a way that you think that I do, but sometimes, sometimes I work in still, small ways. Yes, you experienced me on Mount Carmel and, and you saw fire come down from heaven. Yes, you experienced the, the wings, the meals on, on wings. Yes, you experienced all these great things, but Elijah, I have a plan and I have a purpose. If something happens the way it has happened, it's because I I have a divine plan that I am orchestrating and you don't necessarily know what I'm doing. Your job is not to save the world. Your job is to be faithful in what I have given you. Your job is not to try to change everything and every person, but your job is to be faithful with the people that I have entrusted you to. It's interesting that God showed this to Elijah the way that he showed it to him because Elijah, he says, 
Elijah, look, I want you to go back where you came from, and I want you to anoint three people. And what's interesting about this story, as we read in, in Kings, we see that Elijah then anoints his predecessor, the person who's going to come after him, Elisha. And Elisha then goes and he anoints the kings, and then Elisha anointed the other king, Jehu. And what's interesting about this is that when God called Elijah to do this, he actually had called him to do something that was greater than the things that he had done before. Elijah was so stuck on the big theatrical things of God that he failed to understand that God can work in a way that can totally blow his mind. And we've got to know the same thing. God is not all about theatrics. God is not always all about big things. Sometimes God can do the little things and the little things can outweigh the big things. What God was setting up was something that eyes had not seen up to that point, nor has ears heard up to that point. What God did is he allowed Elijah to anoint these two kings, and through these two kings, there will come victory for Israel. In 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 24, we read that Baalism in Israel for that time was finally defeated. God used these kings and he used Elijah to totally do away with false idol worshiping. We can't always see what God is doing, but we have to have faith to remember that God is doing something. And God is doing something through his people. God has a purpose and God has a plan for us. But if we go into this dungeon, if we allow ourselves to become self-focused, if we give up and throw in the towel, then what? God, we won't have the pleasure of seeing what God wants to do through us. If you give up on your child, and say I'm not never talking to them and treat them the way that they've been treating you you don't know what door you are closing if we get an attitude with our boss and say I'm not speaking to my boss because he didn't you don't know what door God is closing just because people and things are not lining up the way that we want them to be it doesn't mean that God does not have a plan God has a purpose and he has a plan and his plan is better than any plan that we can ever orchestrate his plan is better than anything we can ever think of his plan doesn't just involve us but it involves the whole world let me tell you about a plan that God put together and let me encourage you and let you know that God is still working it out in Genesis chapter 1 the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 3 the Bible tells us that God after forming man he gave them a duty but man sinned and it looked like the devil had the victory it looked like the devil had the strength and the power it looked like he was going to be able to defeat God's plan but somebody said that there was a time later at the fullness of time when God sent forth a woman sent forth a, a virgin and he allowed his son Jesus to come through a virgin the devil thought that he was victorious he thought that he had Israel he set up some fake religious pastors called Pharisees and, and God didn't speak the Bible says for over 400 years in between the time of Malachi and Matthew but God wasn't through with his plan sometimes God allowed a devil to think that he's victorious in order to show him who's really boss and, and God was looking over those years saying yeah it looks like my people are defeated yeah it looks like they're down yeah it looks like they don't have hope but I've 
got something that's going to shake up the world. And the Bible says that he sent forth his son. And you know the story about what Jesus did in the midst of God's plan about how he lived for 33 years and, and how he went around healing folk and, and giving folk hope and how he trained up 12 disciples and, and how he showed the devil that, that he was going to be a force to be reckoned with. And the Bible says that Satan, you know, Jezebel, had a plan and, and he said what I'm going to do is I'm just going to take him out. We're just going to get rid of him. But, but don't you know that the devil can't stop what God puts in motion? If God puts something in motion in your life I don't care what the enemy tries to do he can't stop it. He may slow it down but he can't stop it. Though it tarries it shall come to pass. Come on, somebody. Though it tarries, it shall come to pass. It looked like your promotion should have came last year, but God's got something better for you, baby. It looks like he should have been your husband, but God's got something better for you, baby. It looked like that house was yours, but, but God's got something better for you, baby. Something that's going to keep you humble. Something that's going to keep you faithful. Something that's going to keep you strong. Something that's going to keep you together. Get up out your dungeon and know what he's already done for you. The Bible says that Jesus was taken hostage by the Pharisees and that he was whipped and beat, that they put a crown of thorns on his head, that they mocked him and laughed at him, that they tore his clothes and, and rolled some dice to see who was gonna get him. But God had a plan because little did they know that Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. What the devil meant for evil, that's what Joseph said. God meant it for the good. With every lash, there was healing. For by his stripes, we are healed. With every mocking, there was forgiveness. For he said, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. For every moment that it looked like the devil was winning, there was victory in the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood that makes me whole. Oh, the blood that heals my sin-cast soul. Nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sins? Your biggest problem is not your rent. Our biggest problem is not our boo. Our biggest problem was our sin. And God paid it in full on Calvary's cross. And even now, the Satan thinks that he has victory. Even now, he thinks that he's in control. But he don't know that when Christ rose, all of our hope is put in him. And I don't care how bad it looks now, we know that God is still working behind the scenes. You ought to praise God in advance for what he's doing in your life. It may not look like it, but he's working it together for your good. Come on and praise him.
Come on and praise him. Come on and praise him. He's got a plan to draw all men to him. The Bible says on that last day, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue will see the Lordship of Christ. So I come to tell you today, don't trip. Don't operate in fear. Don't operate in fatigue. Don't feel like you're a failure. God has you exactly where he wants you. He's never leave you. He said, I'll never leave you, nor forsake you. We ought to rejoice in all things. And again, I say rejoice. Let us pray. Father, you are so gracious. You are so much bigger than we are. Father, I pray that if there is someone here in a dungeon of despair, that they remember that it is physical. And we have to take care of our bodies and eat appropriately in order that we can have the strength to hear from you. Father, I pray that they will remember that you are our personal God, that you care about what we have to say, but that you also will minister to us in a way that you see as most effective. Father, I pray that they will remember that you are their powerful protector and nothing by any means shall harm us. The things that appear to be harmful are things that you use to make us to look more like you. Father, I pray that they remember, Father God, that you have a purpose for their life which fits into the redemptive plan of mankind. That you have called us. You have called us to be light and salt, not to be down and depressed. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.